0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a famed warrior king. You might have heard of this bloke. He was responsible for the foundation of the Zulu kingdom in the early 19th century. His name, of course, King Shaka uh, often referred to as Shaka Zulu, because, of course, it was the Zulu people that, people that he led. Now, he started off as the illegitimate son of a Zulu chieftain, but he rose to power with a clever combination of... Politicking and diplomacy, and also a you know fair bit of good old fashioned military prowess and the horrible murder that comes with it. But after beginning his career as a soldier and a general for a bloke named Dingiswayo, the uh, the the leader of the Mthethwa Empire, Shaka was given the uh, given support the support that he needed by Dingiswayo to seize the Zulu throne, and from there a series of all sorts of different events saw him catapulted to power, where eventually he took every opportunity to increase the power of the Zulus, uh, eventually establishing them as a a formidable, independent kingdom. And as king of the Zulus, he instituted a range of reforms, most of them military in nature, uh, that enabled the Zulu kingdom to remain the, uh, I mean, one of, if not the strongest military power in the region for a good amount of time here. This bloke Gifted strategist, gifted tactician, and uh, within the space of a lifetime, really, he turned what was a small chiefdom, I think it's fair to say into a mighty kingdom. And uh, even today, of course, there's a lot of interest in his story. But uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of clarity in his story due to the way that this, you know, this tale has been twisted and distor- distorted over the years. We'll, we'll talk about this in due course. Anyway, before we start properly, uh, I want to thank Mitch Massa, alert listener, Mitch. Uh, for getting in touch with some uh, some great topic suggestions, one of which was indeed Shaka here. So cheers, uh, cheers very much, mate uh, Mitch. Very, very interesting to read about this bloke here. But let's get to it. Let's get across. Uh, well, got a lot. Obviously, got a lot to get across as ever. Let's get stuck in and learn about this bloke here. We go. So we're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to 1787, end of the uh, end of the uh, 18th century there, when around July of that year. Uh, young Shaka was born. Now, he's known, of course, as Shaka uh, kar Zenza nakona as I say. Uh, That was the name of his dad, Chief Zinza-Nakona, and uh, his mum, whose name was Nandi Kabebni-Ilangi, right? Uh, Now, Zinza-Nakona was the chief of the Zulu. And to be quite honest, as I say, the Zulu, they're not all that impressive at this point, just a small and Largely insignificant chieftain located in modern day South Africa, but Kona, he was a chief all the same. And uh, as he and Nandi wasn't uh, they weren't married right when Shaka was conceived, this was a bit of an issue for the young chief here. Even once they actually got married after the the conception, uh, poor Nandi she wasn't treated particularly well. She was a, she was a lesser wife. This bloke Kona, he had sixteen wives in all. Bit greedy there, mate. Settle down. Uh, and Nandi, she wasn't high on the list. She didn't have much in the way of status amongst the other wives. Um, and on top of this, it made it a bit worse for her. Here, Shaka wasn't actually considered Cinsenakona's heir, as he was conceived out of wedlock, and uh, because Nandi wasn't Cinsenakona's so-called great wife, the the, the principal of, of amongst the sixteen wives that he ended up having here. So things weren't great for Nandi, and they only got worse for her as well. Because eventually, after uh, after you know, young Shaka was born. Nandi and um, they didn't get on too well at all. Despite you know her giving birth to his first son, who could have been his heir, but uh, he wasn't because Shaka, when he when he was just a little kid, he and his mum they were exiled by uh, by sent away from the Zulu uh, chiefdom there. And in exile, Nandi headed with her son to the Mthethwa Empire, uh, of which Zulu the Zulu were a vassal of the of the Mthethwa Empire. Um, and this proved to be a good move for young Shaka because gets away from his dad, who's not a, not a, not keen on this young boy. He, he, like As I say, Shaka was the oldest son of, uh, of Senza Nakona, but he didn't recognize him as his heir because of the illegitimacy of the, the conception and the fact that Nandi wasn't a great wife and whatever else. So young Shaka gets away from his old man, who's not too keen on him, goes over to the Mthethwa Empire and has a much better time there, despite the fact that he was picked on by the other kids who were growing up without a dad. But as he grew up, he was taken into military service by the Empire, and he ended up becoming a, a very strong, very skilled warrior. He was tall, he was strong, very muscular, this bloke. And um, he served a, a fellow named Dinguswayo, I mentioned before Dinguswayo, uh, who would ultimately go on to become the leader of the Mthethwa Meth- Empire. So he's got in good. He's got on the ground floor here with this fellow Dinguswayo. And as I say, Shaka—he's tall, he's strong—he rises through the ranks of Dingiswayo's forces until he was a well-respected soldier with great ambition. He ended up being, you know, something of a general for uh, for Dingiswayo, leading uh, Mthethwa Meth- uh, em- uh, uh, troops into battle and that sort of stuff, and and, and really distinguishing himself on the battlefield. He, he won favor with Dingiswayo while fighting in various conflicts for uh, for for the Mthethwa Empire, as, as Dingiswayo's off here and there, you know, growing his realm whatever else. And uh, the fact that he was, you know, in the good books of, of Dingiswayo, the leader of the Mthethwa Empire, he ended up being a, a very bloody good thing for young Shaka in 1816. Because in 1816, right, Zenzin eat he it. He's dead, right? And the reason that this ended up being a good thing uh, for, um, uh, for Shaka is because, you know, despite the fact that Shaka wasn't Zenzin heir, despite being his eldest son, he ended up with the chieftain of the Zula. Now, how did this happen? Zenzanekona didn't recognize Shaka's legi- legitimacy, and his years in exile certainly hadn't set Shaka up for a smooth succession process to the to this throne here. But that didn't stop our mate. Oh, no, because once he hears that his dad is dead, he says, well, listen here, mate, I'm having that chieftainship by hook or by crook. I reckon it's mine. I'm going to go and get it. So, it's here that a very big win-win situation opens up for both Shaka and his boss, Dingaswayo. Check this one out here, right? So, the bloke who officially succeeded Sendenakona was Shaka's younger half brother, whose name was Sigajana. Right now, he was the son. Uh, he was younger, right, than, than Shaka, but he was the son of one of the more favoured wives, and therefore he took precedence in the succession line of succession. Well, Sigajana, of course, had no particular connection with Dingiswayo, right? Of course, unlike Shaka, who'd been fighting from his years, soldier, and the general, whatever else. So Dingiswayo, he reckons he, he can seize a bit of a, a bit of an advantage from this situation. And he goes over, he goes to, to Shaka and he says, mate, listen here, you know, you could be, right, you, I mean, you must be filthy, you must be so dirty, that stinking younger brother of yours, he's got the chieftain when it could be you who, you know, sitting on that throne. And Shaka goes, yeah, mate, honestly, look, you know, not too chuffed about that one, honestly, you should be mine, I'm the eldest. you know how it goes. And, and Dingus West says, mate, absolutely, how about this, right? How about you head back home, I'll send a, a stack of other Mithwethos soldiers with you, right? bloody, you know, do your brother Sigajana in, you take the cheapment for yourself once he's dead, and everyone wins. And Shaka goes, well, mate, sounds like a great deal for me here, sounds like maybe it's too good to be true, what's going on? I mean, how does everyone win? Certainly Sigajana doesn't win, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's very obvious, but what's in it for you? Why are you giving me troops to take back with me here, what's the catch? And Dingusway goes, mate, don't even worry about it, use your brain, think about it, because I don't know bloody Sigajana from a hole in the wall, do I? Whereas you and me, we're mates. You know, we go way back. You've been looking after me on the battlefield for a long time. And Chaka goes, aha, I see, true, o here we go. I go and get the chieftainship with your help. Then you've got me as a, you know, loyal and, and grateful vassal in charge of the Zulu. That's very bloody smart thinking, that is. isn't says, mate, you got it in one. Once you're chief, you can help me out as your suzerain. Now, off you go. You grab some blokes on the way out, head back home and snag your old man's title. So... A win-win for both of these blokes because Shaka obviously gets the chieftainship that, you know, arguably could be his by rights as the eldest son. And Dingiswayo uh, installs a vassal that he knows is going to be very powerfully loyal to him for the rest of his life here. So this is exactly what Shaka does. He heads back to the land of his birth with these, you know, these Methethwa troops in tow. And he put paid to his little brother in no uncertain, well, I was going to say no in certain terms, but actually, to tell you the truth, the terms are actually quite uncertain. We don't, we don't know exactly how it went down, but the long and the short of it was this: Shaka rocked up, killed his brother, and took over the Zulu leadership. It's still a matter of some debate today as to exactly how Sigijana died. Some say that Shaka himself actually killed his brother. Um, others say that he ordered an assassination. We don't know, and whatever the case, in eighteen sixteen, Shaka deposed, killed his brother, and was accepted pretty readily. As the new chief of the Zulu, no worries at all. The people, you know, who's in charge of like, okay, well, one brother's as good as the other. This bloke seems all right. He's totally he's strong. And uh, I was going to say he's good looking, but apparently by all accounts, he wasn't. <laughs> Shaka wasn't a good looking bloke, apparently. Anyway, he's totally he's strong. He's famous. And of course, he's got the backing of Dingusweo, So he's in, he's, he's, he's large and in charge down in the Zulu chiefdom. he's having a great time. He's in a prime position. Not only is he the chief, right, he's a favourite of Dingiswayo and the Methethwa. He's got a very strong backing, gives him pretty free reign as well to kind of do whatever he wants as the chief. And you'll never guess what he did do. He, uh, how do we put it diplomatically here? He uh, consolidated his power in the region by basically invading and taking over neighbouring chiefdoms that were also part of the Methethwa Empire and some that even some even that weren't. Dingiswayo seemed to very strongly approve of this. Obviously, a bit of infighting amongst your vassals never did anyone any harm. Got to keep them honest, don't you? And so the power and the influence of the Zulu grew as, you know, this favorite of the emperor was able to go about, cut about, doing basically whatever he wanted. And it worked for both of them. It worked for Shaka and Dingiswayo. Shaka was happy because his position grew better and better as his power increased. And Dingiswayo was happy because he knew that his trusted lieutenant could be relied upon to support him and the Methethwa Empire in the face of any enemies. And I'll tell you this, Shaka, as lead of, leader of the Zulus, his leadership had a very strong influence on and, and impact on their culture. Right? He transformed the tribe, as I say, one that was relatively insignificant, uh, into one that had a very heavy emphasis on, on militarism and ambitious expansion. And uh, oh, look! In all fairness, it wasn't just with military might that Shaka and his and his Zulus conquered their neighbours and expanded their realm. He used diplomacy, gifts, or bribes—I guess you could call them—and other, you know, less warlike methods to grow his realm here and there where he could. And and many neighbouring tribes vassalised themselves to Shaka quite willingly. Shaka was a he was a skilled and, and quite ruthless politician, and uh, you know he was he was happy to use either words or weapons to increase his power but he did very importantly undertake a bunch of military reforms with new training regiments weaponry troop organization logistic all sorts of stuff right he improved the zulu army with his new approach to managing military affairs and it had a very very strong impact on the uh, on the future of this uh, this chieftain and later on as we'll come to kingdom but we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in uh, later on the episode here but all the while right all the while however you know even with new vassals, he's trained, state-of-the-art military, all this sort of stuff. He remained subordinate to Dingiswayo and the Mthethwa Empire, but this didn't last, and I'll explain to you why. The Mthethwa Empire uh, had its enemies. Obviously, of course it did, right? And one such enemy were the Ndwandwe. This was a, a kingdom led by a fellow named King Zwida. Now, the Mthethwa and the Ndwandwe, they had been scrapping for years, right? Border disputes, skirmishes, invasions, whatever else. But in 1817 the indwandwe they kicked it up a notch and they started fighting the Mthethwa uh, hell for leather. They really started getting stuck in with these incursions and, and, and skirmishes, whatever else along the borders and in some cases even sending people quite a fair way into the, the territory of the Mthethwa. here. Now Dingusway obviously responded, wasn't going to take this lying down like Shaka, he's not afraid to fight on the front line so he himself led his troops into battle he went off to defend his empire from, uh, from Sweda's incursions but this proved, can you guess to be a bad move as Dingaswayo was captured and ultimately executed by the Ndwandwe, who were obviously keen as anything to invade, take over the Mthethwa, and this was just a freebie, capturing their leader, being able to chop his head off or whatever else, and that was the end of him, right? Fantastic. So now, with Dingaswayo, I don't know that they actually chopped his head off, I don't know how they executed him, but they killed him all the same, and with him dead, right, you'd think that overtaking the Mthethwa would be a much easier thing to do. The Empire doesn't have a leader, all Zwerda needs to do, march in there, take it for himself, if only exalted listener. If only there were a strong and fearless leader with a wealth of military experience and mighty armies to back him up as he avenged the death of his mate Dinguswe. if only there was such a person. I mean, you know, you might have already guessed that Shaka swung into action, gathered his troops and marched off straight away to fight the Ndwandwe, and you'd be absolutely wrong, you bloody idiot, because the Ndwandwe were that powerful that the Methethwa, the, the Methethwa and the Zulu and everyone else were pushed back by their, their incursions. They had that much momentum, that much strength, initially at least, that even Shaka and his Zulu armies were, were powerless to resist. But as the Indwandwe encroached further and further into Methethwa territory, people there realised that they're in a spot of bother. They're scattered, they're divided, they're leaderless, they're heading towards chaos and a, a, eventual defeat here. They had to do something. And so they rallied all these disparate tribes and cultures and whatever else that had all been unified under the Methethwa Empire that was now on the verge of collapse. They found a new rally point. And that rally point was, of course, Shaka and the Zulus. While he didn't have any kind of claim to the leadership of the Methethwa Empire or anything like that, People knew him. They knew he was a strong and courageous fighter. He effectively took over the empire as people looked for a new rally point, a new place that they could pin their hopes and, and, and send their soldiers to try to fight back these uh, incursions uh, from the Ndwandwe. Other tribes accepted his leadership. They gave him troops to lead against the uh, the enemy here, and Shaka began to push back against King Zweda quite effectively indeed. He resisted these incursions, eventually forced the, uh, the Ndwandwe into a pitched battle uh, which was known today as the Battle of Quokley Hill. Now, our knowledge of this battle is a little shaky. There have been some very fanciful accounts of the battle over the years, but here's a basic picture. Shaka and his forces, as I say, I mean, they're outnumbered, right? The, the Ndwandwe have, have, have got a huge number of troops, but Shaka, he, all the same, he faces them in this open battle. Despite being outnumbered two to one, he took advantage of the terrain. He parked his troops up on top of a hill, and he relied on the training and the weaponry of the Zulus and their allies to carry the day. And I'll tell you this, it did exactly that. The Ndwandwe, they attempted to fight. They attempted to fight the Zulu on this hill, obviously fighting uphill, absolute disaster. Never an easy thing to do. And as the uh, Ndwandwe were attempting to advance up the hill towards the Zulus, uh, Shaka sent his reserves that had been hiding behind the hill, around the rear uh, of the Ndwandwe forces, encircling them, trapping them at the bottle, bottle, bottom of the hill, and while the fighting was fierce and bloody, and while thousands of people lost their lives, Shaka and his forces had the better of it, and they routed the Ndwandwe. Zwerida wasn't finished. This wasn't the end of the war by any means. He retreated to lick his wounds and figure out what he was going to do next, how he was going to have his revenge on this young upstart Shaka who's come out of nowhere. You know, he's not even the emperor of the uh, of uh, Mithethwe, and everyone's bloody, you know, falling in behind him, whatever else. He's not having any of it. So uh, after some time, gathered his forces once again, headed back into Methethwood Territory. Or oh, guess, it's not Methwa Territory really anymore. It's Zulu Territory now, now that old mate Shaka is in charge. But Shaka, he was ready. He was ready. He knew the second invasion was coming. He'd prepared himself for it. He'd, ta- he'd used the time to recruit even more soldiers for his army. He took advantage of the grudges that many local and regional leaders had against Zuita for his warmongering. He was able to pull, pull together a large number of new troops as a result. And he trained them, he armed them, he put his reforms into practice, he taught them more advanced warfare tech, uh, warfare techniques and strategies. Again, we'll talk more about these reforms in a little bit, they're quite interesting. But for now, the stage is set for the uh, for the, the, for the final showdown, the decisive battle against Sweden and the Ndwandwe. And that battle was the battle of of the, M- the, the Mlatutsu River, right? And this was, as I, as I say, a decisive one, it proved. It effectively eliminated the Ndwandwe threat once again thanks to Shaka's strategic approach to uh, to seeking victory. He didn't mobilize fully against the Ndwandwe. He allowed them to make it, you know, a fair way into the, the Zulu territory here to this river that, as I say, and it was there when they reached the river that the Ndwandwe began to cross, of course, and Shaka waited there, for the opportune moment, the perfect time to strike. He attacked when the Ndwandwe forces were divided on either side of the river. Once half of them had crossed over, Shaka ordered the attack, and as a result, effectively only had to fight two smaller divided armies rather than one great big one that, you know, wasn't in the midst of a chaotic river crossing here. This battle was... As I say, decisive. It effectively ended the conflict between the Ndwandwe and the Zulu. The Ndwandwe were all but destroyed, and while Zuida escaped, he died not long after this battle. And for those that did survive, many of them, along with plenty of other tribes that had been under the previous authority of the Ndwandwe, they came over to Shaka's side. So he has done incredibly bloody well for himself here. By 1818, Shaka has become. A powerful warlord, the leader of a mighty kingdom that was essentially unrivaled in military strength in this region, and people often date this point in 1818. This is the beginning of the Zulu kingdom. It, it's the one that you know, Shaka took over the remnants of the Mthethwa empire and established himself at its new leader. As its new leader, this was the point at which the Zulu kingdom really came into being. And I'll tell you what, he certainly made it, it, it his own. With what came next, he expanded and developed his realm in the coming years. Most notably, as I mentioned, when it comes to the military. Here's something interesting though before we get in, again, I do want to tell you about the ways that he he reformed and developed his realm. but I want I want to set the scene for the way that this bloke is sort of viewed through the the longer lens of history here. When I was reading about Shaka, I found that the the older the source that you go to, the more likely it is to attribute Shaka's reforms and his innovations. To European influence. Now, these days, the consensus broadly amongst historians is that much of Shaka's groundbreaking work in developing his kingdom's military was, you know, his work and it wasn't just taken from other people. I mean, he travelled and campaigned extensively. He would have been exposed to all sorts of strategies and tactics and techniques and reforms and whatever else. So, of course, he probably took new and foreign ideas on and incorporated them into his kingdom. But it's entirely reasonable to imagine him being able to modernise his realm in ways that don't, you know, solely re- rely on European influence. But funnily enough, however, older historians are strangely reluctant to admit that an African king could have used innovation and progress to advance his kingdom in his own right. No, of course, an, an unsurprising conclusion for older historians to arrive at, I suppose. Imagine, imagine thinking that modernisation is even remotely possible without Western influence. Anyway... I'm reasonably confident here in saying that it's mostly nonsense. Shaka was the sort of bloke who was full of good ideas of his own, as well as obviously being more than happy to nick a good idea from others when he found one. But his contact with uh, with European colonists in, in, in Southern Africa at this point was, I mean, it wasn't non-existent, but it was limited, certainly. And uh, many of the reforms, many of the ideas, many of the changes that were made during his administration while he was king... It's uh, it's a little bit disingenuous, a little bit dishonest, really, to to say that all of these reforms emerged and, and were, were the result of his exposure to Western Western culture and and, and Western ideals, because I mean it's it's just not true. He was a, he was a smart bloke. He was, as I say, a gifted strategist, gifted tactician, and uh, and, and a lot of the stuff that he did uh, was uh, were, were ideas that came to him after an extensive military career. So, anyway, let's talk about some of the stuff that he did as King of the Zulus here, and, and you know, many of these military reforms were brought about um, before or during uh, his fight with the Ndwandwe. Uh, but uh, after becoming a more or less uncontested, powerful leader, he, he really went about implementing them throughout his realm. And, and this was when they really became, you know, a very, uh, a very a characteristic, iconic part of, uh, of, of the Zulu kingdom here.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.
1: I already mentioned how he instilled a strongly militaristic culture throughout the people that he ruled. Um, uh, this really showed itself in, for instance, some of the logistical reforms he undertook. For, for, for example, here, young kids, right, just six of age, six years of age and up, they were used as uh, as almost apprentices, right, support staff for the army until they were old enough to fight. They'd carry stuff about, make deliveries, pass on messages, you know, move food and weapons about all sorts, and and from a very early age, be exposed to the life of a soldier. Uh, which readied them for inclusion in the military as soon as they were old enough to fight. So there was a level of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, conditioning for for even very young children. As I say, six and up uh, were exposed to uh, to the to a military, a very military-oriented culture to get them ready to fight when they uh, when they grew up a little bit. And when they did grow up, uh, these young men they would be recruited into the military and made to join regiments uh, that were drawn with with people that were drawn from all over the kingdom right so remember there are all sorts of different tribes and whatnot throughout shaka's lands and and these young men were made to fight and train and drill alongside people that they weren't familiar with you know it's not as if they were all these regiments were all taken from the same place no in order to sort of encourage uh cohesion and kingdom-wide unity help people from different tribes integrate with one another more effectively these people were taken from all over the place and and sort of put into these regiments where they liked it or not although you know as Shaka had to deal with the odd civil war here and there, it didn't didn't always work, but still forcing a level of cultural cross contamination from throughout his kingdom by mixing up young blokes from different areas, making them fight alongside each other, it would have helped to unify, you know, a potentially very fractious realm. And when these soldiers, when they did go off to fight, they did it in a way that they weren't used to. Once Shaka had had his way with them, he uh, he trained and he drilled his soldiers relentlessly. You know, he wasn't a, he wasn't a kind bloke. He was a, a pretty merciless leader, and he really did expect a lot from his troops. And as a result, the training was relentless in, in attempting to prepare them properly for battle. His troops were the most skilled and disciplined, and therefore dangerous in the in the region. Here, they helped to maintain the, the Zulu kingdom's very significant military might. And as I say, he wasn't a merciful leader. He pushed he pushed his soldiers to breaking point. He made it clear that you know there was terrible punishment uh, that awaited any soldier who failed in their duty, and not just the soldiers, but their families too. So. A bit of the stick rather than the carrot there for Shaka in in attempting to get these uh, the best work out of their soldiers. But I mean, look, I suppose it helped to get the job done because his uh, his soldiers. I mean, he expected them to be brave, strong, and, and and tough as nails, and and largely speaking, they were. Check this out. He wouldn't let them wear shoes. He didn't let them wear shoes, for instance. He thought that he, he thought that it it, uh, it held them back. He forced them to uh, to march and fight in in bare feet to to toughen them up so they could run unencumbered for great distances. And, there are stories of Zulu regiments marching 80 kilometers in a single day, although these stories haven't been properly verified. The real number might be a bit lower than that, although it is possible. 80 kilometers in a day is certainly a fair clip, but it is possible. Um, and Chaka also, very importantly, made significant changes to what his soldiers were, were equipped with. Uh, the typical weapon of soldiers in this part of the world at this time was the assegai. This was a long spear or a javelin designed to be thrown, right? But Shaka wasn't a huge fan of these weapons. He didn't take them off his soldiers, but he changed their loadout, I guess, if you want to call it that. Uh, and he had his troops also use a weapon called the Ikhla, right? Which was essentially a very, very short spear with a head like a dagger. I guess if you want to look at it this way, it was like a dagger with a very long handle, right? Now, we don't think he invented this weapon, but he might you know, might have poached the idea of someone else. But he did equip his troops with this Ikhla, right? And it was used in close combat, unlike the assegai, It made the Zulu unbeatable at close range. They'd piff off their assegais for, you know, skirmishing and whatever else. And then they would move in very quickly behind their cowhide shields and fight hand-to-hand with their Ikla and, uh, and these great big shields. You've seen these shields. We'll talk about them in a second. Um, the shields were used... Uh, Shaka's favorite, te- favorite technique with the shield was actually to use them offensively. You'd use the left-hand side of it to hook the, uh, the, the side of your enemy's shield um sort of uh, slap it away or drag it away uh and then a stab at the exposed torso with the Ikla. and this was a very very effective technique particularly against enemies that were used used to fighting at longer range with these assegais. guys you know obviously a your spear you're fighting at a longer range with that and um this uh this close quarters fighting was another thing that made the zulus you know just that bloody formidable as enemies uh, I want to talk more about the shields, of course. You may have seen the iconic these iconic Zulu shields. They were treasured objects. They remained the, the property of the, of the kingdom even when they were used by soldiers. You, you know what they looked like, big, huge oval or leaf-shaped things, black and white cowhide. And what was, what's really cool about these shields is that they were fashioned in a way, they were fashioned in such a way that members of the different regiments I was talking about before, they were given shields with patterns that matched as close as possible so as the cows were slaughtered and skinned the shields were made up of of similar looking cow hides right so say you got you know we got a black one with some white spots in a certain um, in a certain pattern they would try to make as many of those shields as possible look as similar as possible and give them to the different regiments then you got a different one maybe it's a white one with you know maybe a, a, a black splodge across the bottom of it or something like that they'd try to make as many of them as possible so they would try to homogenize these shield designs and give them to individual regiments, so they could almost be, you know, identified by their. It's not too dissimilar from European heraldry, if you want to look at it like that. But they had to use the rather more organic forms that were found on the. You know, not an easy thing to do uh, when you're when you're using, you know, natural cowhide. But they tried to have uh, have each regiment, you know, with its own sort of design ish, right? Which is, I think, a very, very cool thing um, that uh, you know that they did there. Anyway, it wasn't just the weapons uh that that shaka changed but also how they were used right and how how they were used in formation as the zulus fought uh, that made them so unstoppable here shaka came up with a tactic known as the bullhorn formation he would get his tougher soldiers the, the veterans the grizzled and and hardy warriors who had seen many many battles and he'd pop them right in the middle of the fight here and these blokes would uh, advance and engage with the enemy again at close quarters And during this hand-to-hand fighting, two horns, one on each side, would quickly run around the enemy and encircle them. So you can imagine bull horns, right? You've got these two sort of crescent shapes coming around the side to encircle the enemy in the middle. And these blokes that are coming around from the the, the flanks, these horns, they were made up of the fast soldiers, the quick ones, the young ones, quick on their feet, able to close the distance uh, quickly and circle their foes. And then... As this, you know, encircled enemy was uh, was desperately fighting for a way out, there was a fourth division, right, the reserve that would be waiting to chase down anyone who broke out of the encirclement and and attempted to flee. This formation was absolutely devastating. Again, particularly against foes used to fighting at range. And it was a key element of the Zulu military superiority. In fact, historians have compared the dominance of the Zulu forces at this time. But the old Roman legions after the Marian reforms, they... They were just a lot better at fighting and killing than their opponents were. They were better trained, better armed, and they had better leadership and better strategy and tactics, and therefore were largely unopposed by other military forces in, uh, in the region. And uh, you won't be surprised to learn that Old Maid Shaka put his military superiority to very good use. It is a matter of some debate As to exactly what this looked like, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, historians from various points in history have all weighed in with different ideas and perspectives, but let's talk about what we know for sure. Shaka did not rest on his laurels. No, not at all. He conquered the hell out of the region surrounding his kingdom, bringing them under Zulu control one way or the other. I mean, look, some came willingly. Very sensible thing to do. They knew what would happen if they didn't uh, come over to the Zulu kingdom willingly and vassalize themselves. Um, and those that did, uh, some of them, the local chieftains, were able to continue ruling as vassals of the Zulus, while others uh, were replaced with people chosen by Shaka instead. But those who stood up and those who fought and resisted, they invariably died, and they died horribly. Taking prisoners wasn't really something that the Zulus did, um, and uh, armies, enemy armies would be mercilessly wiped out by Shaka and his Zulus. They swept through the areas that they invaded. In the decade between 1818 and 1828, Shaka expanded his realm, his power and his military to the point that he had 50,000 soldiers at his command and was ruling a huge territory here. And these soldiers, all they did was fight to grow the Zulu kingdom even more over the years. People were either conquered or they died or they fled. Shaka's influence on Southern Africa was quite significant. He killed many and displaced even more, triggering you know mass migrations as people fled the Zulu expansion and, and the terrible wrath of Shaka and his, uh, and his armies here. But here's where we run into issues. Because people have obviously sought to portray Shaka in this way or that way, depending on their political agenda. This is, you know, this is the way with many historical figures. People spin their stories to suit their own ends. But unfortunately, unfortunately, as you might have guessed, there is a very heavy shadow of racism that, uh, that, that clouds the history of, of, of Shaka and, and, and the Zulus here. Because the stories about his cruelty and barbarism, bloodthirst, how he slaughtered people, forced them to flee their lands, you know th- these stories they spread very quickly. They were pushed by people who were keen to use this perception of him for their own gain. And namely, these people, of course, were European colonists. They saw themselves as bringing in enlightenment and, and civilization to Africa. And they used people like Shaka. They twisted his story to make it seem like he was this this brute, this savage, you know, and that European colonization and all of the peace and prosperity and, uh, and civilization that would come with it was the only way to tame this wild land and the people like Shaka who lived there. And I mean, you know... Colonists went out of their way to portray Shaka as this, as I say, monstrous savage, stories of everything from mass slaughter and cannibalism to make him seem wild and brutal. And this characterization of Shaka was used for a a lot longer than you'd think, all the way into the 20th century to justify institutions like apartheid by making these racist ideas of uncivilized savagery and butchery as, you know, the using them as the as the basis for, you know, these these horrific discriminatory and, and and hateful ideologies that were that were so so persistent. It's 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 terrible. And look, Shaka was a soldier. He was a warlord. There's no doubt that he pursued deadly conflicts with neighboring areas as he expanded his kingdom. But wasn't the first ambitious king ready to spill blood. But his image was, was twisted. It was distorted to make him seem much worse than he was for political purposes. There's a common figure thrown around that Shaka killed a million people during his time as king. This was almost certainly just made up by a bloke who was seeking a big land grant in Southern Africa and wanted to make Shaka seem like a monster. There's little evidence for a number of this magnitude. It's, it's one that's thrown around. You'll often hear that, you know, Shaka butchered a million people, but there's not a lot to suggest that he did. He definitely piled up the bodies as he pursued more power and more land. But again, he's hardly the first king to have done something like this. And it's a shame. It's a shame that his story has been made so difficult to properly tell due to the racist caricatures that history handed handed down to us thanks to European colonial efforts. Anyway, all that aside, Shaka, he spent 10 years as the king of this, of the Zulu kingdom, expanding its borders, incorporating new tribes killing a lot of others, and establishing his realm as a very powerful one indeed, backed by one of the most well-trained and well-disciplined armies in the region. But it wasn't to last. It wasn't to last because the beginning of the end of Shaka's rule came in 1827, when his poor old mum, remember Nandi from the beginning of the episode, she died. 1827, she passed away. Now, Shaka, he did not deal with his mum's death particularly well at all, let me tell you that. And ultimately, this was what brought him undone. I said that Chaka was pretty merciless as a, as you know, as a, as a king, as a leader, and he certain, certainly was. He was a hardened and uncompromising king, and while Western characterizations of him as this, you know, cruel and, and and barbarous savage went off at the deep end, they they weren't completely baseless. He wasn't a nice bloke to his enemies or to the people that he thought had failed him. He executed people pretty readily when he was displeased with them. But when his mum died, who boy. He lost his grip on reason and reality, and his cruel, arbitrary behaviour ended up costing him a lot more than his throne. After his mum died, Shaka ordered a year of mourning. Okay, fair enough. Obviously, you're very sad about your mum going, so a year of mourning for everyone. Okay, yep. I mean, I can see where you're coming from there. But this year of mourning prohibited the planting of crops or the use of milk, which was a staple of the Zulu diet, of course. And additionally, any cow that had a calf was immediately slaughtered so the calf would experience being motherless like Shaka himself. So you're more or less guaranteeing a famine there, Shaka, old son. You need to just calm down a bit, mate. But no, he didn't calm down. He went further. He ordered that any woman who became pregnant should be killed along with the bloke who impregnated her. And on top of that, anyone who Shaka deemed to not be sad enough about his his mum's death, would also be executed. Now, it won't come as a surprise to you to learn that this didn't go too well for him. After about a year of this absolute lunacy, people had had enough. And when Shaka sent off his troops for another invasion to the north, he left himself undefended as his soldiers marched off, and it was then... That his enemies struck. And you might be thinking, Ooh, who, which enemies, you know, which external foes may have snuck into his king? No, 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 not at all. It wasn't external ones. Oh, no, no. It was actually, in fact, his own brothers, his half brothers, Dingane and Malangana, right? These two uh, were, were other sons of, uh, of Senzanakona. And they'd had enough of his nonsense, I mean, as had everyone else since he kind of lost the plot they're all sick of Shaka and him just, you know, killing people everywhere and, you know, risking a, a widespread famine with these ridiculous rules that he put in place. And it's thought that, in fact, these two themselves may have done the deed and stabbed their brother to death, taking advantage again of the, of the lack of troops around to protect him. Story goes that after they killed him, they dumped his, uh, his body into an empty grain pit and then filled it up. So we don't know where his final resting place is. But whether that's true or not, after he was killed, his brother Dingane took over the kingdom. But he had a new problem on his hands because, you know, all these troops that Shaka had sent off on the latest campaign were all very fiercely loyal to their king. And Dingane had a bit of a tough job holding on to power as the successor of Shaka, who again had the fierce loyalty, loyalty of all of his soldiers. He ended up just bribing them. He ended up just paying them all off to, uh, in order to support him as the new king. Um, and then very methodically, Dingane worked his way through the Zulu, Zulu military and the government and just killed anyone who had been closely aligned with Shaka or anyone who he thought harbored a grudge uh, over his death. Dingane certainly, uh, you know, tied up all the loose ends and did a pretty good job ultimately of shoring up his grip on power, but it wasn't enough because later on, a couple of years later, with the backing of European powers, another of Shaka's half-brothers, a bloke whose name was Mpande, he killed Dingane and seized the throne for himself. Now, Mpande ruled until 1872, although his son Sichuayo was in charge for much of that time. And it was Tsitshwayo who went on to fight the English in the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, which ultimately brought an end to the unstoppable power of the Zulu Kingdom. But for a while there, thanks to the efforts of King Shaka, the Zulu Kingdom was largely unopposed in political and military power in this part of the world. And it had a very, very strong influence, not just on this region, but the region surrounding it, as I say, thanks to the migrations triggered by the depredations of Shaka while he you know, invaded and expanded his realm like this. And while the Zulu kingdom doesn't exist anymore, today it's part of modern day South Africa, the descendants of the old Zulu kings are alive and well. And in fact, the title of King of the Zulus has been passed down all the way from Shaka back in 1818 right through to today, 200 years later. The current King of the Zulus is, is kicking about today as, as you listen to this podcast. His name is Misuzulu Zulu and he is, I think, the great-great-great-grandnephew of Shaka himself. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of King Shaka Kazenza Nakona. And uh, once again, a big thank you to Mitch for sending it in as a topic suggestion. If you'd like to do the same thing, here come the boring housekeeping announcements for you to, uh, To I mean, a lot of you just skip over them. So goodbye, I guess. Um, HalfHouseIssue.net, that's the contact form. Uh, so that's the website. You find the contact form there. And of course, and all the old episodes and announcements that go out there as well, uh, if you want a direct link to the feed, anchor.fm/slash. Half House History, thank you to Anchor for putting the podcast up. Um, what else? Of course, the Patreon. Thank you to all the people supporting me on Patreon, patreon.com slash half history. Uh, you can get across that, support the show financially if you so choose, but you don't have to. The podcast is and will always be free. But uh one of the reasons, one of the reasons that you don't have to listen to ads, um, apart from this one, I guess, uh, is all the people on patreon supporting me i have no plans to add ads to this podcast in the short term and as long as um you know those dollars keep coming in on patreon i don't have any uh i don't have any intention of changing that so thank you to everyone who is supporting me on patreon and thank you for you to just look for listening to this dumb podcast as well you're supporting me even if it's not financially just by getting those numbers up just by telling people about the podcast so thank you very much indeed uh, to you and that's it we're done. Going to close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. We'll see you back here next week for more Half Hour History. Until then, leaving you with this one, who comes to uh, this question, which comes to us from Paladin Luke. And I imagine many of you have already guessed what kind of question it's going to be. If Shaka Zulu and Genghis Khan never even met, then who is was Shaka Khan?